Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast. In this episode, I'll be bringing you the audio for an impressions vlog that came out recently, and in that video, I discussed four new games that I was able to play over the last month or so. Now, I'll be going through them in alphabetical order, so the first one is Aftershock, the second game I'll be talking about is Blindspot, then I'll move on to Throne of Allegoria, and I will finish off with a big one, which is Trismegistus. Now, if you are not interested in listening to all of these, then feel free to go to the description of this podcast, where you will find timestamps for each specific game. While you're there, you will also find a link to the YouTube video that this audio came from, and if you have any comments about anything I say today, then feel free to click on through there and leave comments on the video. Now, the final thing that I'd like to briefly mention before we start talking about games is the fact that this podcast is only being made through the direct support of the Patreon supporters of the YouTube channel. Now, if you enjoy the podcast and being able to listen to these vlogs instead of having to watch them, then please consider supporting the Patreon campaign by going to patreon.com slash Games. Alright, let's now start talking about games, and the first one for today is Aftershock. Now, this is a relatively recently published game, and I was able to play a single five-player game of this about five days ago or so. Now, what's going on in this game thematically is a massive earthquake has hit either the San Francisco Bay Area, or you can flip the board over and then it hits Venice. Now, we obviously played with the San Francisco uh, Bay Area side because that's where I live. <laughs> that's where all of us lives, and it was a bit kind of uh, close to home, I guess, uh, because as we we're playing on this map, we see all of these regions that, you know, I know very well. You have Fremont and Hayward and San Francisco and South San Francisco, and, you know, these are all places that I drive to somewhat often. Now, uh, mechanically, what you're doing in this game is effectively trying to get area majorities within the different regions out on the map, and each one of these cities has been, um, I guess, ripped apart from each other by this massive earthquake. So a big thing you are doing in this game also is actually rebuilding bridges out onto the board. Now, mechanically, what you're doing in this game is you're going to go through a few different steps together within each round. Now, the first step involves dealing out a hand of cards to everybody, and then everyone can spend their money in order to buy as many cards as they want to from this hand. Now, these cards have a variety of different uh, things on them. Some of them are really simple. They might just say, put a single one of your pawns into Fremont, for instance, and you're like, okay, well, that's pretty simple. Uh, other cards are a little more expensive, and they let you build a bridge anywhere you want, really, and they also give you another pawn that you could put anywhere you want, so that's a nice bit of flexibility, and there are also Aftershock cards. Now, mechanically, what you actually do in this game is you can cause aftershocks to happen in specific areas, which means I guess we all have godlike powers, but either way, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because after you have finished buying all of the cards that you want from your hand, you will then take the rest of the cards and put them face up in front of your player screen. Now, at that point, players can now go around the table one at a time, buying cards away from your opponents. So if somebody buys one of the cards I did not buy, then they take that card and they give me money, and then I could use that money to buy another card that's in front of another one of the opponents. Now, now, this idea definitely reminds me of Isle of Sky, which is a brilliant game. It's one of my favorite games overall, so I was very excited when I learned about this mechanic. Um, I, I should say that I didn't actually read the rules to this one. I, I went to a local game night, and somebody was setting the game up, and they had a space available, so I sat down, they taught the game, and we were able to play it. So uh, after everybody has spent their money buying cards away from their opponents, then you go through rounds where you actually play the cards out and you put your different pawns on, down onto the specific spots. And then behind a player screen, everybody is going to secretly decide where bridges are going to be built, where new pawns are going to go down, and where things like aftershocks are going to happen. So then you reveal these and you put all these down onto the board, and the aftershocks cause you to roll a die. It's a special die. It has two ones, two twos, and two threes. And you 
you have to then send that number of pawns from the specific aftershock area out. Now, if there are no bridges, then you just remove them from the board, but if there is a bridge, then they're going to travel down the bridge. Now, if it's their color bridge, then they don't have to pay anything, but if they go down somebody else's bridge, they have to pay uh, $1 million or $1 in the game to the person who owned that bridge. Now, uh, what that means is you are going to be playing cards to put down pawns into specific areas to try and to take majorities, and then also playing aftershocks to try and shake up those majorities, literally, as you try to get other people to go away. Now, you might aftershock an area and then only target your own pawns because the area majority isn't going very well for you, and so you figure it's better to send these out to different places, and you can actually send them out to multiple spots. They don't just go to an adjacent location. You can keep having them move, and you just have to pay each time they go across one of the bridges. Now, um, that is most of what you're doing on your turn, but then the final kicker, the final mechanical thing that kind of pieces everything together is that everyone is then going to, uh, in a hidden manner, select where is going to score. Now, each person has, I believe it was three of these scoring tokens, and they can put them down onto the different uh, regions on the map behind your shield, and then everybody reveals these, and a region will only score if at least two people have selected that region. So what this means is, this is an area majority game where you might be in the majority and you might not actually get any points for it because that area might not score. So there is a bit of a negotiation aspect to this game. Now, um, when we played our five-player game, which is, I believe, the max player count, we only did two rounds of this. I think there are three rounds at lower player counts. And in uh, the second round, especially, when we were in the, the phase of the game where we were actually trying to figure out where it was going to score, people were talking a lot. It was like, I'd look across the table and I'd be like, hey, Hey, uh, Nick, you and me, Fremont, right? Like, sure, I'm in first, but you're in second. I'm only going to make one more point than you. You want those five points, right? You know, that kind of thing. Now, the problem is that you only have three of these markers, and there are a lot of regions. And another thing that you can cause to score are bridges. Now, this is just a majority of bridge pieces out on the board. So again, that's only going to score if multiple people think that makes sense. Now, there is an asterisk to this because one of the cards that you can buy essentially gives you a bonus influence token, which means you can put it down with one of your basic ones to force a scoring without having anyone's help. Now, these cards are pretty expensive, but obviously they are very important because you might find yourself in a situation like we had in our game where one player was dominating the bridge game and they knew that nobody else was really in a position to want to throw a token over there to give them all these points. So they just forced it to happen by spending money to get the card to make that happen. And they ended up winning by a pretty large amount. But um, in general, that's my friend Nick and he wins games a lot. And it was not just the bridge thing that caused him to win. Now, uh, speaking of the inverse of winning, I came in dead last in this game. And a major reason for that is because the two regions that I had to majorities in in that second round did not score at all. I tried, I put my scoring tokens down on them. I talked to the people who were in second place in both spots and I, I tried to convince them to score those spots, but everyone only has three of these tokens and they all decided to go somewhere else. And I kind of ended up at the bottom of the pile there and when the dust settled at the end of the game, I couldn't help but feel a little bit weird about it overall. So we had a bit of a discussion, and it really seems like this game has a lot of really cool ideas. Like, pretty much every one of these uh, ideas that I've mentioned so far are things that I really like. Uh, the idea of buying cards and then leaving some out on a market that other people can buy to give you money to buy more cards, well, that's awesome. I love that in Isle of Sky, and it works really well in this game. Uh, the idea that you have an area majority game where not every area is going to score sounds fascinating, but... In reality, it was pretty frustrating. And then when it came to the actual uh, putting of pawns down and doing the aftershocks, well, that's a really neat idea from a thematic perspective as well as a mechanical one as you're trying to like uh, work out your majorities. But 
you also roll a die to see just how many of these pawns are going to move. Now, there are better aftershocks that you can buy as cards, and they add plus one or plus two to your die roll, but that doesn't change the fact that you might buy the cheap aftershock and roll a one, and that might not actually really do anything. Now, this is an area majority game, so that one movement might actually be huge, but either way, it just seemed like this game did not come together very well for me. Um, maybe it's because this was a five-player game and we were playing uh, just two rounds instead of uh, more rounds overall, but it seemed like I liked each individual part of this game. I thought there were really cool ideas at each step of the way, but when it actually flowed together as a game, I did not feel actually that much ownership, A, on how well I did, and B, I didn't feel that enthusiastic about where it was. You know, I came in dead last and I wasn't I didn't feel all that bad about it. I was honestly just kind of happy that the game was over so that I could move on to something else. Now, that kind of makes me, it sound like I hated the game, which is not the case at all because it was an interesting experience through each step of the way. And I have a hard time really pinpointing an exact flaw or something about it. I just have to say that, you know, my perspective and the perspective of a couple friends that I uh, talked to after the game was just that we weren't actually that interested in playing it again. It just, it just did not come together very well and it's hard to exactly say why. Um, this is not my copy. I'm sure I will see it getting played again. And I don't know if I have an opportunity to play it at maybe three players in the future, I might give that a shot. I think I heard that you might get more of the influence tokens to um, cause more regions to score at lower player counts. So it's possible that we just play this game at a bad player count and I have a bad initial impression of it because of that. Uh, so yeah, I guess with that in mind, I might give it a shot again at a lower player count. I'm not going to uh, completely say no overall, but it's certainly not a game that I am actively chasing down to play again. Okay, let's now move on to the second game, and this one is Blindspot. Now, this is a game that I had not heard anything about before I started playing it. It was brought out by a friend of mine at a local game night, and it was pitched to me as a real-time competitive word search type game. And I am awful at word games in general, but I decided to give it a shot. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about how it works before I discuss how it went. And uh, the, the main mechanic of this game is, is word searching. You effectively take out these uh, different uh, tiles that have letters on them. They make a square grid of different letters, and when it's your turn, you're trying to find a uh, word either in a row or a column. Now, the word can be uh, forwards or backwards as you're finding it, but the big catch for this game is that when you take your turn, you have to put one of your little tiddlywink discs down onto the board in the middle of that word, blocking out one of the letters. So what that means is if you want to sell, spell the word um, cat, for instance, you might look out to the board and it might say like C-Z-A-T. So now I have to take my token and I cover that Z. So now it just says C-A-T, that's the word. I say that and then my turn is done. So now the next person can go. Now, I did say that this is a timed game, and that's because everybody has a little hourglass, which is, I think, 30 seconds, that you flip over when it's your turn. So it's not simultaneous real time or anything like that, but you do have a time crunch trying to find these words. Now, um, as far as a mechanical catch, that's a pretty interesting idea. Like, you can look out and find words, but you don't want to find correct words. You want to find words with one error to then put that token down. And then when it's your turn again, you actually have the opportunity to flow past the tokens that you put down already. So like I said before, it says C token A-T. So now um, maybe on your next turn, you can use that C, A, and T on a longer line to make a better word that I cannot come up with at this moment, and you just skip over your token. Now you cannot skip over your opponent's tokens, which means this is a word search type game that also has a bit of an area control vibe to it, because as you put your tokens down, you are blocking 
options from your uh, opponents around the table. They cannot cross over your pawn. Now, as soon as you have a turn where you cannot put a pawn down, you have to put one of your little tokens out onto a little board that says, okay, I've missed one turn. And once you do that twice, you're out of the game entirely. However, once you do it once, you then unlock the ability to find diagonal words. So effectively, this means the flow of the game, hypothetically, is players find all of the good words, things get more and more crowded, it's harder and harder to find stuff because your opponent's pieces are around, so then you can't find anything, you take a, pawn, a token, you put it on the thing, so you're one step towards losing, but now diagonals are available, and so there's this whole new, uh, you know, gold rush of new opportunities out there on the board. And uh, yeah, that's essentially the game. You keep playing, I believe, until one person uh, is remaining. Now, what actually happened in our game is it very swiftly became a two-player game from the three of us because, as I said, I am awful at word games. Now, what ended up happening is I was able to find my first word, and that was fine, and then it came back around to me, and then I believe I found my second word, and then it came back around to me, and I just could not find a third word. My opponents had no problems, but I stalled out, 30 seconds went by, so I put my token down, suddenly diagonals, diagonals are available, so now my opponents go, and just in quick succession they find words that I didn't see, so suddenly it's my turn again. Now I can do diagonals. I still can't see anything, and the 30 second timer goes out, I put my other token down, and I was just out so fast. Now what ended up happening was my two opponents played a two-player game for, I don't know, a good... 10 plus minutes after that, and it was actually really entertaining to watch them. Uh, the board got really crowded, it got really tense as things got really close, and I don't actually remember who won, but um, I definitely felt a little bit of shame because they kept playing and playing, and I just looked out to this board where there are just these two little red tokens out there, the only two things I was able to do. So at the end of the day, Blind Spot is a game that I am awful at. Uh, it's a game that I will likely never play again, but I have to admit, I think it's a pretty cool game. Uh, if I liked word games, this is one that I think I would be pretty jazzed about because that idea of of finding the words with the, the, the letters that you don't want in the middle and trying to uh, take over space to kind of hem your opponents in while you are also potentially unlocking diagonals. It just seems like there are a lot of really great ideas in here uh, that uh, people who like word games will probably really like. So uh, I'm going to end this by highly recommending it if you enjoy real-time and or word games. But if you are atrocious at word games like I am, then it's really not worth your time to play. All right, let's now move on to the third game I'll be discussing today, and that one is Throne of Allegoria. Now, this is a pretty recent published game from Spielworks Games, and I bought a copy from the Board Game Geek Store because that's the main way that I can get it um, here in the United States. That's the main way to get Spielworks Games. Now, Throne of Allegoria is a game with quite a bit going on, and I'll, I'll talk a bit about the mechanics of it now, and I'll try not to go into too much detail, but the main thing that you're doing in this game is you are doing blind bidding onto actions, and then when you reveal those actions, the strongest person who put the best bid down there gets to do the most actions, and then after that, the next person can take less and less. Now, these bid tokens that you have, well, you have six of them. Uh, two of them are zeros, you have a couple ones, you have a two, and then you have one that can be a one or a two. Now, those zeros are effectively bluff bids. If you send those out and they get revealed, they don't do anything, and you just pull them right back off the board. Now, at the start of each round, players are just going to be putting down these bidding tokens onto seven different action areas on the board, and you won't know what your opponents have done. So that's really where the zeros come into play. You can put that down and then maybe stack a zero on top of a one that you put there, and your opponent might be worried that that might be a one and a two, so they might overcommit to that area to put more bidding power there because they're concerned about that uh, tile, which ends up being a zero. 
Now, um, what you then do once you have put all your tokens out is you go through each of the seven areas and the person who has the highest power in that spot gets the best version of that action. Now, uh, some of those actions involve giving you workforce cards, which will help you bolster tracks, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, another spot lets you get in-game goals, which you can cash in when you do specific quests, essentially, and they give you points. And the main thing that these actions will do, essentially um, uh, five out of the seven actions, will be influencing the board in a variety of ways. Now, um, a big thing about this game is the uh, little uh, meeples that you have that you're going to put out onto the board. And they can be one of three different things depending on where they are. If they are in a battlefield, they are a soldier. If they're in a tavern, they are a spy. And if they are over in the uh, marketplace, then they are a merchant. And there are different action spots for each one of these different types of units. Now, when you do these actions based off of how much you bid compared to your opponents, you can do things like add more soldiers, spies, and merchants. You can also move them around the board and you can do main actions with them. Now, there are effectively two different types of actions in the game. There are deploy actions and there are task actions. Now, the deploy actions just let you put out the units and move them, and the task ones let you have those units do their special thing. Soldiers are going to fight when you use the task actions, the spies are going to do uh, intrigue, and the merchants will let you do trade. And I'm going to try really hard not to go into the specifics of how all of this works, otherwise I'd be talking for quite a while. But uh, realistically, soldiers are going to fight soldiers. And when that happens, you are going to compare the amount of soldiers one person has to the other, and then you roll a, a special die. Now that die has a couple of zero faces, it then has a one, a two, a three, and a four. And you add that to the amount of soldiers that you have, and then the person with the most power is going to win that battle, and they take spoils based off of the difference. Now the spoils could be just removing uh, opponent's uh, soldiers from that area, or you could just take influence, which is points. Now, if you try to go battle with your soldiers and there's no one there, then you can do a raid action. And for this, you just take a soldier off the board to gain a point. Or um, there is now a, I guess, a sanctioned designer variant that I did play in my second game, where you can roll that um, zero to four die and add those extra points when you do that first raid with an action. Now, that's the details of raiding, and I guess I shouldn't talk about all of the specifics of everything else too much. Um, but realistically, in this game, you're doing all of these seven areas, and then you're going to go back into the bidding phase, and you're going to do this six times. Now, at the start of each of these rounds, you're going to draw an event card, and there's a pretty wide variety of them, and they do a bunch of different things. But a neat thing about these event cards is there's a top and a bottom. Now, the top is activated if the queen is alive. I guess thematically, the queen is dying, and you're not sure when that will happen. And at some point, you will draw a card that says the queen is dead, and then you topple the queen figure down. And now, for the rest of the game, when you draw those event cards, you read the bottom part instead of the top. Now, I wasn't able to get a huge data set, but it seemed like the top actions are more beneficial, and the bottom actions are a little bit more... Um, aggressive and uh, costly around, like the top action might give stuff and the bottom action might take stuff away. Um, but it definitely varies the gameplay, especially from a thematic perspective, as everybody's, you know, vying for control of the land as the monarch is dying. So you're going to play through six rounds of the game like this, and I know I've glossed over humongous amounts of the mechanics, but I think I'd like to now start talking about how the game actually played for us. Now, I played uh, two games of this one. The first game was a uh, four-player game, and the second game was a three-player game. Now, the only difference between these two plays, besides the player count, is in that second game, I played with the uh, designer variant that I mentioned. And a big reason for that is because in our first game, we all had fun playing it, but there did seem to be this strange thing where 
soldiers didn't seem very good. <laughs> you would spend a bunch of energy to uh, make your soldiers, to send them out, but only one person out of the rest of us around the table decided to make soldiers, and so they had nobody to fight. So they just did the raid action, which just gave one influence when you pulled a soldier back. Uh, so I'm actually uh, friends with one of the designers of this game, and I was chatting with him on uh, online, and he mentioned this um, variant that he was working with, and it's now been published into the official errata for the game. And I was quite curious to try the game again with that variant to make the soldiers a little bit more impactful, like knowing that you could raid in an area and get that guaranteed point and then roll the die and potentially get up to four more points definitely incentivizes making soldiers and deploying them. And what ended up happening in our second game, which was just three players, is there were quite a few more soldiers made. Uh, now, there was not a lot of raiding and battles happening, but at least there were some, whereas in the first game, there was no die rolling at all. Nobody rolled a die because the only person who had soldiers just fought nothing and just pulled their soldiers back to get points. Now, um, from a points perspective, there are a few different ways to get them in the game. And one thing I do want to mention is a diplomacy track. Now, you get to go up this track whenever you do the main task action for spies. And this gives you a point multiplier based off of the number of those in-game goals that you've taken. Now, you only get these in-game goals when you go to that action. So the main way that you get them is just once per turn. So that's effectively six for the whole game. Now, there is another way that you can get a couple more, but it's pretty expensive. But what you do is you complete these goals that they give you points, but then at the end of the game, your diplomacy track multiplies on those goals. So it seemed to me, uh, especially in my first play, that I needed to go really hard on that diplomacy track and then try to complete six in-game goals. And when you max the track out, that's six times uh, uh, five, I think it was, and, and it ended up being about 30 points or six times six, something like that. Uh, now that seemed to be a great thing when you consider the fact that a good score in this game is about 60. And in that game, I think I lost on the tiebreaker and I went really hard on those goals and the intrigue. Now in the second game, I was quite curious to try battling because I was going to be playing with this variant. I wanted to see how that went. And so I did not emphasize the um, diplomacy track as much. And I did very poorly in that game. Uh, I'm really not sure after only two points of data, it, it just does not feel like the, the soldier strategy trying to get out and do lots of battles is all that effective. And it's very possible that I'm just very bad at pulling that off. So maybe it's just a harder thing to do as a newer person to the game. But I did find that to be a little bit strange. Now, there is another mechanic that I have not mentioned at all that I really should, and that is the fact that each player has a board in front of themselves with a bunch of tracks. Now, these tracks are in line with the uh, different guilds in the game, and as you push up these tracks, you are going to essentially get points at the end of the game, but you can also go down these tracks in order to get bonus actions, which will really help you out as you're trying to piece together good turns to make units and move units and actually activate them to do the stuff that you want. Now, obviously, these tracks are important because getting extra actions is good, and the main way you go up these tracks is um, through spending these workforce cards that you can get as an action. Now, there are other ways to do this, and I am really trying hard not to go into the weeds on a lot of these different uh, mechanics. But um, another thing that happens with these tracks is if you go too far down in any given track to get points, you will take Anarchy. Now, Anarchy are little negative point tokens, and they are each worth a variable amount of negative points based off of how much anarchy the entire table has. Um, they could be minus one point or they could be minus four points each depending on how many are out there in the system. Now, what ended up happening in both of our games is people were constantly taking anarchy because getting bonus actions is important. So going down on your tracks is good even though going up on your tracks gives you points. 
But what happens is one of the action spaces that you can go to lets you get rid of anarchy to kind of give alms to the poor, and then you actually get to go up a uh, little um, alms track, which gives you bonuses. So it seemed like it was relatively easy to get a bunch of anarchy and then get rid of that anarchy as we were playing. And uh, in either of the games, we never had the uh, negative value of anarchy ever go over one. So I'm not really sure what was going on there. Maybe we were being still a little bit too uh, cautious with our ability to take anarchy because lots of the actions let you take an anarchy to add something. Like when you're battling and you're rolling a die against an opponent, if you are the aggressor, you can take an anarchy to add plus one to that die to give you a little bit of control over how that battle is going. So that's just another thing that you are balancing with all of this other stuff going on. So... <laughs> At this point, I feel like I've been a little bit disjointed as I've been trying to describe how this game goes. Uh, but realistically, the main beat of this game is trying to complete these goals. You have uh, goals that you get in the middle of the game. And then at the start of the game, you also get five special goals. You're going to keep three of them and you will try to complete them at the end of the game. Now, I do want to mention these specifically because in the first game, I don't remember exactly what those uh, final end, end of game goals were, but they didn't seem all that difficult to work towards. It seemed like they were each things I could wait until the very end of the game effectively to try and cash those in. Uh, and it's really important to cash all goals in because if you get them, then you get points. And if you don't, at the end of the game, you actually lose points. Now, I had uh, one goal, for instance, I believe it said, have uh, more spies on the board than soldiers. Well, in that game, I never made a single soldier. So I made one spy and I easily got that goal. Uh, there were a couple other ones that seemed to be very tactical and things that I could worry about in the last round. Now, I'm going to compare that to my second play of the game, where it was three players, and two out of the three cards that I had were things that I needed to work towards from the very first turn of the game. Uh, they involved getting to a specific spot on the tracks on my board, and uh, it was not easy to get to that specific spot. So I strived really hard to get those tracks up while still spending going back down the tracks to get bonus actions when I needed to. And when the dust settled at the end of that second game, I made one of those two and I lost the other one by a single step. And that's a pretty impactful loss because those end of game cards give you five points if you get them or they lose you three points if you don't. So it's effectively an eight point swing. And again, a good score is like 60. So losing eight points based off of being so close, but not quite getting there can be a little bit uh, painful overall. Uh, so overall, this is how the game plays. You're just going to go through six rounds. You're placing bidding tokens out. You're moving things around the board. A major thing that you're paying attention to are your in-game goals. So you might decide to make those soldiers because you have a goal that says have soldiers here, there, and there. So you're like, okay, well, I don't want to lose points for this card. So let's make the soldiers, let's move them out. And then I believe, you know, the intended tension there is, well, you have soldiers now. So cash in on those soldiers, do stuff with them, go fight, raid, do these things. And hypothetically, multiple people will get goals, which will cause them to make uh, soldiers, make spies, make merchants, and then have them kind of clash in a variety of different ways. Although it's just the soldiers that actually clash. Uh, so you are just gunning after these goals as you are playing the game. And I couldn't help but have a feeling after both of the plays that I didn't really build anything in this game. And that's not a slight against the game at all, because that's obviously not something that they were gunning for as an overall design. It seemed like this game was all about kind of the race. You know, you're like, you know, constantly trying to make these goals work. And okay, good, this one's done. Okay, get a new goal. Oh, can I do that? Uh, yeah, I'll try to make that happen. So it's, it's all about modifying your situation and then spending resources to make those goals happen and then cash out extra points after you have those resources already uh, invested in out on the board. And I have to admit that 
I don't really know if it did all that much for me. Um, I liked a lot of the individual ideas of this game. I thought the bidding worked really well. Uh, the bluff bids were interesting. I definitely saw times where people overcommitted because of those bluff bids. You can also use those zero bids to get in early because you can break a tie on the uh, strength of your bid by getting into that spot earlier and then just stack on top of your bluff bid with the two that you wanted to do all along. So I really liked the bidding structure. I really liked the track system in this game where you could, you were trying to go up the tracks to get points and then the higher up on the tracks you are, the more efficient you move. I didn't mention that, but that's a thing. And then also getting bonus actions by going down and then getting anarchy that you have to balance. I just love all of these ideas, but I can't help but feel like I'm kind of repeating myself from Aftershock earlier where it seemed like the game was a bunch of really interesting ideas that came together in a way that I just, don't fancy that much. Uh, I think realistically, after playing this game twice, I don't think I'm going to be playing it again. Um, I, overall, it was not that hard to teach. The game comes with a great player aid that really helped uh, people jump right into it. I liked the idea of the monarch dying and like, you know, people vying for control as, you know, we have events coming out. And uh, I really liked the way that people were trying to piece together and make these goals work. It just seemed like it was, I don't know, maybe too restrictive to make the goals happen. Although, I got the goals done where I needed to uh, for the most part, but it just, the game did not really click with me overall, and I'm having a hard time exactly saying why, but at the end of the day, I think this is where I stand. All right, let's now move on to the final game I'll be discussing today, and that is Trismegistus. Now, before I move on, I do want to be very clear about the fact that I have an ongoing professional relationship with the publisher of this game. Uh, in fact, they paid me to make a sponsored tutorial playthrough for Trismegistus. So if uh, what I'm about to say interests you or confuses you, then definitely check out the tutorial because it will certainly help things. Now, uh, obviously, I am going to be biased with my opinion because of that professional relationship, but I played this with friends and I did want to talk about it. Uh, so there it is. You now have uh, a couple grains of salt to deal with, but uh, let's now go ahead and talk about how the game plays. Now, uh, thematically, what you are is alchemists trying to create the Philosopher's Stone. Now, mechanically, what you're doing in this game is you are drafting dice of a wide variety of types, and you're going to use those dice to try and get materials get essences, transmute materials into better materials, and use those essences in order to complete experiments, which will give you bonuses and let you keep doing all of these things. Now, there's a lot going on to this game, and I'm going to try to take a very high-level approach to explaining it, but uh, mechanically, when it is your turn, if you don't have a die, then you have to draft one from the center of the board. Now, the die that you choose is going to have a potency level, which is essentially how powerful it is, and that is equal to the amount of dice of that type that is still on the board. So at the beginning of the round, you roll a bunch of dice, and if on your turn you take an iron die, and there are three iron dice in that spot, then that iron die that you took has a potency of three. Now you put that onto your board, onto the three spot on a track, and then you take your main action, which is going to use potency of that dice, but not necessarily all of the potency. So what that means is, some turns you're going to draft dice, and other turns you're just going to use potency from a die that you are uh, still extracting uh, value out of, essentially. Now, with that potency, you can do a wide variety of things, some of that I've already talked about already, and realistically, you're trying to match everything up to make these experiments happen. Now, you have to spend potency to get new experiments, and the experiments usually want refined versions of goods. Now, in order to get refined goods, you have to turn raw goods into the refined version, but you don't take uh, raw tin and turn it into refined tin. No, raw tin gets transmuted into refined mercury. So that means if you want raw tin, or a refined tin, then you need to get raw copper, which is farther down the track. 
Now, at the bottom of every player's board, there is this uh, flowing uh, path that goes from lead all the way to gold, and there are many steps along the way. And one of the things you're going to spend potency from your die on is to transmute. Now, the die that you choose is going to have a color. It might be red, white, or black. And when you transmute, you just care about the color because different parts of the transmutation chain are associated with those different colors. Now, when you transmute, you're going to obviously upgrade that material, but you also have to spend an essence. And when you do that, the essence is associated with a specific element. Uh, for instance, ether is associated with, I believe it was water, uh, and salt is associated with fire, etc., etc. Now, when you spend that, you actually go up a mastery track for that specific type of element. And that's important if we double back to the experiments, because when you complete them, you have to get rid of resources, but you also have to prove that you have mastered that type of element enough to actually complete the experiment. Now, each one of these cards tells you a threshold you have to be at. It might say like five water, and that means you have to be at the five spot on the water mastery track, which means you have to have found some way to go up five times. And in general, that means transmuting, getting rid of ether because the uh, ether is associated with water. Now, there are a lot of other ways that you can make all of this stuff happen. And realistically, the rubber meets the road in this game when it comes to combos. Now, um, one of the things that you can get in this game are artifacts, and they get uh, slotted in underneath each one of the different transmutation paths. And when you do that transmutation, if you have an active artifact, then that's going to give you bonuses. And this game is all about piecing together bonus combo-y engines. So what ends up happening when you're playing this game is you might have a turn where you draft a die, and then you spend one potency to take a single raw material for that and that's it. Your entire turn is done, and it took you like 10 seconds. But on your next turn, you might, through the use of bonus actions and combos, find yourself doing stuff for like five minutes straight. You might start off by saying, okay, as a free action, I'm going to complete this experiment. Cool, the experiment gives me bonuses, it lets me get a free transmutation, and then with that transmutation, I'm going to move this over here, I spend an essence, which bumps me up a track, and then when I do that transmutation, it activates an artifact, which is going to give me more essences as well as more materials, and now with those materials and essences, I can use that bonus transmutation that I just talked about already to double back into that thing and, oh, I went on a different area, and now that new artifact is going to activate, and then that finishes, but now you have enough stuff to complete another experiment, and then this whole thing jumps right back in again. And there are other free actions which can give you um, these formula tokens, which you can put down into the middle of your board, and when you fill rows and columns, you get more bonuses. So this game is all about just tiny little setup turns, and then explosive, massive turns. You have a turn where you do, like, one thing, and the next turn you do, like, 18 different things in this precise, intricate path that get you to the very end. And I have to tell you that it feels incredibly satisfying to pull it off. But I also have to tell you that it's very brain intensive. Um, this game it's very heavy. <laughs> uh, from a rules uh, uh, perspective, honestly, it's not that bad. Uh, I think I've taught this game in under 30 minutes. Um, uh, well, I guess I only taught it once. But I did not have a hard time teaching the game, and the concepts of the game were not that hard to uh, get through to my opponents around the table. But when you start realizing the ramifications of all of your decisions, analysis paralysis can absolutely set in. Now, I don't remember exactly how long it took, but in our three-player game, it was, it was at least three hours. Our three-player game was at least three hours, and that means this was an hour per player. Now, it was not overly long. I was actually shocked at how much time had gone by when I looked at my uh, phone when the game was over, because I spent that entire three hours just with steam coming out of my ears, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Sure, my opponent was doing a big turn over there, and they're taking a bunch of time, and they're humming and hawing about what thing to do, 
but that's fine because I'm over here like, how am I gonna piece this together? Okay, I'm gonna transmute this over there and I activate this to add this over here. That's gonna be gone. Okay, then I'm gonna get rid of this experiment. So these are gone, but then I'm gonna get this stuff and then will that let me do this other thing? And there's just so much stuff to think about. And um, that also came into play with the, uh, the playthrough. Um, it took much longer than average to actually film, even though it was only a two player perspective because there's just a lot of ramifications of your decisions. And if you want to play this game well, then you're gonna to have to plot a course through these wonderfully satisfying combos. And um, if you don't do a very good job of that, then you might actually find yourself not particularly close to your opponents. Now, there is one other thing that I do want to mention that adds one more layer of complexity to the game, and that involves these publications. Now, you start the game with one of them, and you can get more as you're playing through the game, and they simply give you conditional end-game victory points for doing a wide variety of things. Now, as far as Euros are concerned, this is super standard, like conditional end-game points. Yes, give me more of that. I love that stuff in Euro games. However, in order to get those points, you have to activate them by spending elements. And how do you get elements? Well, the experiments that you complete give you elements, the artifacts that you take give you elements, and you can also get elements by maxing out your mastery tracks. So in addition to all of these combo things that you are thinking about, you are also trying to piece together the things that you have completed, you know, the artifacts you've spent uh, a lot of potency taking, and the experiments that you've put a bunch of effort into completing. Well, you don't want to end the game with a bunch of elements unused, so you want to make sure those piece together with the publications that you have, and that means you also want to make sure that you are gunning towards the conditional benefit of that publication, and as you can see, this is just one more layer on top of this analysis cake stack thing that is going on in this game. And and I feel a bit conflicted about it, honestly. Um, our three-player game took three hours, and I, I just don't play three-hour games all that often. Uh, now, I haven't sat down to play a two-player game with somebody else, and I think if I did, it would be quite a bit shorter. It would probably be more like two hours or so. And I do think that I would potentially do that because... The combos, when you pull them off, are so incredibly satisfying. Honestly, they can be exciting at times. Uh, there were a couple moments in both of the games, even when I was filming it, where I was excited about a turn because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to do so much stuff. This is going to be so cool. Uh, but then, of course, there's a lot of other time sitting there thinking, I am just one thing away from doing the cool thing. How do I figure this out? And, you know, how much time do you invest into trying to figure out how to overcome that one thing versus just saying, okay, well, that awesome plan isn't going to work. Time for a new plan. So I think that's going to pretty much wrap up everything I have to say about Trismegistus. Uh, where I stand is I, I honestly might not play it again because it is so analysis paralysis inducing, but I really enjoyed a lot of the stuff that's going on in, and I like the flow. And even though I played a three hour game of it, it did not feel that long because I was in a time warp of extreme mental calculations. And I just find these days in general, I'm not necessarily looking to play games that are this intense and this crunchy, but a lot of people are. And if you are looking for intense, crunchy, combo-y, wacky games where you can pull off some pretty crazy things, then Trismegistus is probably something you should try to play at some point. Well, at this point, we have now reached the end of this impressions vlog, and I think it was a bit of a long one. Uh, a couple of these games were somewhat heavy, and honestly, I did not have super glowing things to say about uh, some of them, you know. Uh, and sometimes in these impressions vlogs, I'd say every single game that I played was great, and a lot of that has to do with selection bias, because I choose to try and play games that I think I'm already going to like. Um, but, you know, with some games you hit, and sometimes you miss. Um, obviously, I probably liked uh, Trismegistus the most out of all of the ones that I talked about today, but even that one I have some reservations about playing even more. 
So yeah, I think that's going to bring this podcast to a close. Now, once again, if you have any comments about anything that I've said so far, then please click the link to the YouTube video for this one in the description and leave a comment there. Thanks for listening.